I think it might be helpful if I were to comment at the outset uh, of the mindset that I come to this conference. I think sometimes we think that guest speakers come with a sense of having it figured out and come as the answer man. And my sense is that as I look at these topics that the other speakers will be addressing, I'm in tremendous need. Uh, back home at Bethlehem, these are days of, of uh, upheaval in a good sense, and we are perplexed in many ways. And so when I read these words um, under Peter Jensen's picture, how do we find patterns and structures for our churches in such a changing situation with mission frontiers more fluid than ever? How do we enable and serve the task of mission while safeguarding the integrity of the faith once for all delivered to the saints? Can we take seriously precious distinctives and cherish church traditions while at the same time grasping opportunities offered to us by the shrinking world of globalization? What does the missionary church of the third millennium need to look like? Nothing sounds more relevant to my church right now than that question. I think I have a few treasured, precious things that I want to share with you. But there is so much I don't have yet figured out about how to do church in an urban situation like I'm in. And so I come as a fellow hungry learner with you. And we'll be here for every session and would not miss them. My wife and daughter are about doing the sightseeing thing, but I will be right here with you trying to figure out how to do Bethlehem Baptist Church for the next 10 or 15 years where I hope the Lord will keep me. So that's the mindset with which I come hungry with you. And I'd like to pray one more time that God would help me now do my part. Father, the potential of hundreds of churches represented here being ignited and inflamed with a passion for world evangelization is unspeakably great. And I pray that we would not have small prayers, that we would not set out too few jars for oil, that we would not stamp our arrows on the ground too few times as we pray for what might be pleased under Your grace and power to happen through this conference. Oh God, far more than we ask or think, do for the nations for the churches, for the neighborhoods, for the souls of ministers, hungry, needy, perplexed, discouraged, eager, hopeful, broken, with marriages ready to break up, children wayward, breaking our hearts. God, I pray that You would come with such refreshment with such illumination of the glory of Christ and with such power that we would not 
feel unable to do world evangelization as though it were a burden on an already heavy ministry. Let no pastor feel that world evangelization is a crushing burden to add to his local ministry. May it feel freeing. May it feel empowering. May it feel as part of what he was designed to do with his life. That, Lord, and a hundred other things I can't begin to imagine do for the good of your church and for the nations, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. It's not the ultimate goal of God. Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is the ultimate goal of God. Missions exists because worship doesn't. And one of these days, when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, like the waters fill the sea, and all that is ungodly and all that is unbelieving is cast out into outer darkness, missions will be no more. We must keep this ranking Clearly in mind, missions is a temporary necessity for the sake of the accomplishment of the ultimate thing, namely the white hot worship of God from a people gathered from all the tribes and tongues and peoples and nations and nothing short of that. And therefore, every one of us in this room has a calling to join God in that purpose of gathering worshipers. Just a few texts to underline this purpose. You all know John 4.23, where Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well. And finally he comes to say, The hour has come, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, For such the Father is seeking to worship Him. That's what God is doing in the world today. God is moving and seeking people to worship Him. That's the reason Christ came. Same thing is said about the reason He rose from the dead. And keep in mind, this is God's design, not ours. Therefore, God has exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what, that, what makes that so stunning is that if you go back to verse 9 and then connect verse 9 with 11 where it ends, God raised him from the dead and gave Him a name so that every tongue would glorify God. God is doing this for God. God's business in the world is to get glory for Himself. That's what missions is in the mind and heart of God. I will have worship. I am seeking worship for myself. That's what we have to underline. Or the second coming. Not just the first coming. Not just the resurrection, but the second coming. 2 Thessalonians 1.10 
an amazing statement about why God appoints an hour, sends the Son back to earth. Listen, when He comes at that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. I love to ask people, why do you think Jesus is coming back? Very few answer, He's coming back to be marveled at. That's why He's coming. He aims to get marvel from all the peoples of the world that have been gathered by missions. So God, John 4.23, is seeking worshipers. God... Philippians 2, 9-11 is doing everything by exalting Jesus in order that He might get glory. And God, through Jesus, is seeking for His Son to be marveled at at His appearing. So it's very clear what the design or the title of this message, the purpose, the goal of missions is in the heart of God. It is to get worship, to get glory, to get marvel for Himself and all that He is in and through His Son Jesus Christ. And very specifically, in order to make sure the mission's focus is struck, he's doing it in order to get worship, glory, marveling from every tongue and people and tribe. And you know where I'm getting that, right? We know this verse. Revelation 5.9 is more important to me now in understanding my calling and the calling of the church than is Matthew 28.19 and 20. I mean, that's crystal clear, gloriously powerful. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But even more clear for the specific aim of God and the church is you were slain and by your blood have ransomed people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation and have made them priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Every people, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, those four words tell us it's not about nation states. This is one of the great clarifications you need to bring to your church. Missions is not about reaching every one of the 212 countries in the world. In those countries, there are hundreds and thousands of peoples, tongues, tribes, and nations like Cherokee, Ojibwe, Warani, Fulani, English. I can't say American. I probably shouldn't say English either. I'm not sure quite what that means ethnically. In London, who knows, right? Same in America. We are a, a stew pot nation. Used to call ourselves a melting pot, but it doesn't melt. It's a stew pot. All the lumps remain in the pot, which complicates mission tremendously, and it is a glorious calling. So, God's purpose in missions is to get worship, to get glory, to get marvel from 
all the peoples, tongues, tribes, and nations. And you need to read Patrick Johnstone's Operation World, pray through it, so that you get a feel of what those peoples are, where they're unreached, so that you can inform your people over and over again what's out there to be done, not just in our little neighborhood, which is crucial, not to minimize that at all, but, oh, the world of the North Africa and the world of the Middle East and the world of Central Asia and the world of Asia, not to mention our post-Christian Europe and America. Our role, therefore, in missions is to join God in seeking worshipers for God. We are called to partner with God by His power, through His strength, with proclamation that is prayer-soaked and Spirit-filled and mercy-expressing so that people awaken to the glory of God in Christ. So how does it sound when missions is heard? Psalm 117, verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. That's the sound of missions. If you ask, what does missions sound like? It says, extol Him, all peoples. Praise Him, all nations. That's the way it sounds. Or Psalm 96, 1. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Missions is the church saying to the nations, Sing! Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Declare His glory among the nation, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Don't give Him a little bit of praise, nations. Give Him lots of praise. Great praise. Because great is the Lord and He is to be greatly praised. That's the message of missions. And we should burn inside until Saudi Arabia praises Jesus Christ, the King of kings, and recognizes that Allah is not God. There are huge obstacles to this, as that last comment notes. Here's the main obstacle to this. The main obstacle to our passionate pursuit of the supremacy of God, for the glory of God, among the nations, is that we are not a God-centered people. I risk saying that in a land where I don't minister and I mean it mainly about Americans, I just assume it's true here, and if it's not, pass over this. We are not a God-centered church in America. I mean evangelical, liberal Protestant, Catholic. We're not a God-centered people, church. And there are evidences of that that I'll mention. And you can, you can judge whether they apply here or not. Evidence number one. Now, the reason I'm dwelling on this for a moment is because I think pastors must labor, preach, pray, die if necessary to produce God-centered churches. Because until we have a passion for God's supremacy above all things, we won't do missions the way God does missions, which is seeking worshipers, seeking His 
marvel. We'll do it in some kind of man-centered way which will peter out in the end and will not last. Evidence that we are not a God-centered people. The pathetic Christian response to 9-11. Absolutely pathetic. In three ways. Oh, poor God. He was helpless. And He was not sovereign. And there was nothing He could really do to cause those planes to swerve maybe ten meters. How many pastors, Christians, were embarrassed by their God? Unafraid to say He's God. He is God. Unafraid. I mean afraid to say that He is God. And if He chooses to breathe, they move. And He didn't. Pathetic in the vague God talk instead of the supremacy of Christ. How many radio interviews? How many times did you get a, an, even an evangelical, a liberal Protestant, a Catholic, an imam, and a Jewish rabbi being interviewed? And this evangelical rascal wouldn't say Jesus if you paid him. Lest somebody take Offense at the name. Pathetic because of flag waving instead of repentance. Oh, how many evangelical Americans put their flag on their front porch the day after? How many businesses flew their flag the day after? And how many got into their pulpits or said to their neighbors, it happened to Jesus one time, they came and said to him, what about those whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices in Galilee? What about the Tower of Siloam upon whom 18 people fell? And Jesus said, do you think that those on whom that tower fell were more unworthy than you and all those in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you're going to die too. That was scarcely heard. The point would have been, the amazing thing about 9-11 is that I wasn't in the tower. That's the amazing thing. The amazing thing about 9-11 is that the church of Christ wasn't in the airplane and in the tower. That's the thing that should stun us speechless. I'm alive. I'm alive. I haven't been cast into hell or brought into judgment. That's the amazing thing. I heard R.C. Sproul one time preach on that text, Luke 13, 1-5. He entitled the sermon, The Misplaced Locus of Amazement. Typical sprawl title. The Misplaced Locus of Amazement. Meaning, these people were stunned that the tower had fallen on 18 people. And Jesus said, you want to 
And you want to hear what you should be stunned about? That it didn't fall on you. So repent while there's time, America. That was the message. Repent, America. England, yours will come. That's why there's so much security. You know it will come. That's evidence number one for why I think we are not a God-centered people. Evidence number two is the psychologized view of the love of God. This is far more pervasive than 9-11 or anything close. This has been going on for, say, maybe 60 years in America, and I don't doubt the same psychologization of the, the love of God is prevalent here. And what I mean by that is the gospel of self-esteem by which all problems in America are solved. All educational problems are solved with self-esteem. All parenting problems are solved with self-esteem. All depression problems, when it's not medicine, are solved with self-esteem. All educational issues in the church and outside. We will teach you how to help people feel good about themselves. That is the Gospel in America. Evangelical and liberal. And it's tragic. The love of God, I'm just going to lay this on you because I would take 60 minutes to argue it if you, if you wanted me to, but I have a limit. The love of God is not His devotion to making much of you. The love of God for you is His, at great cost to Himself, doing what must be done to enable you to make much of Him joyfully forever. I'll say that again. The love of God is not contrary to 60 years of man-centered psychologization of the love of God. The love of God is not making much of you. His love is His doing whatever He must do, and it cost Him His Son's life to do it. Doing whatever He must do to enable you to enjoy making much of Him forever. There's a whole theology in that sentence. It takes books to unpack it. But if you understand that, you will understand how un-God-centered our churches are. Because there are mo- most of the people in my church, unless they've been getting it, and I hope some have, can't even compute or conceive of a way to be loved that is not mainly making much of me. I just feel so good when it happens. How can it not be loved? You you say nice things about me, I feel loved. If God says nice things about me or does things that help me feel good about myself, I feel loved because I'm an American. I'm not biblical. But oh, once he becomes central, then I know that if somebody bends every effort to help me feel good about me, or if God bends every effort to help me feel good about me, and does not bend every effort to help me enjoy him, he's cruel. Ashes he feeds me unless he enables me 
to enjoy Him. And He is the bottom of my joy, not me. That's evidence number two for why we are not a God-centered people. And the last would simply be to just ask these questions. How many of your people say things like Psalm 73? Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. How many of your people talk like that? Spontaneously. How many of them say with Augustine, pray with Augustine, it's a prayer, He loves thee too little, Father, who loves anything together with thee which He loves not for thy sake. How many people talk like that? How many people say with with, uh, David Livingstone, I will not value anything I have or possess except in relation to the kingdom of Christ. We need to teach our people how to have things and be glad about it for the kingdom's sake. Because many of our people are happy to have, and that's where their joy terminates. Well, enough talk about the evidence of not being a God-centered people, and therefore being unable as churches to do missions the way God does missions, namely for the glory of God, for the marvel of His Son, for worship. God is seeking worshipers. If we don't have in our churches a passion for the supremacy of God as our chief joy, how in the world will we with any authenticity say to the nations, sing to the Lord a new song? We're not singing it. We're just going through motions. So, pastors, ministers, we got to change this. If you want to become a world Christian pastor, if you would like to see your church count in some increasing measure for global evangelization, you've got to labor and pray and preach and suffer and live and model God-centeredness and a passion for God's supremacy above all things for the sake of the nations and How does one do that? That's my last crucial question. How does one help people not stumble over God's God-centeredness in missions? That God Himself is seeking the worship of God. That Christ Himself is seeking the exaltation of Christ. How do we help our people overcome their resistance to God-centeredness? Now, I think everything that will be said in this pulpit is a partial answer to that question in these three days. I don't doubt it. So I'm just giving you part of the answer. Here's my part. We must show our people that the essence of worship is that God 
is glorified by our enjoying Him. God is glorified. If you say, your, your people, in other words, need to be taught and shown, what is it to glorify God? What is it to magnify God? What is it to worship God? What is it to make much of God? Because my guess is, most of the people, when you say, tell me what that means to glorify God, to magnify God, to make much of God, to worship God, they will come back to you with actions. Well, let that be said. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So if you only answer the worship question with actions, it is vain. They can perform all the actions in the world, even give their body to be burned and not worship God, not glorify God, not magnify God. They come to church every Sunday, sing every hymn, pray every prayer, read every text and give away their goods to feed the poor and their bodies to be burned and go to hell and God get no glory but the glory of his punitive justice. You don't want to preach like that and you don't want to produce a church like that. You want to produce a church with heart. This people honors me with their lips. Flap, flap, flap go the lips. And their heart, that organ of passion, that organ of zeal, that organ of love, that organ of joy and fear and reverence and hate, That organ you must touch. And you can't without the power of God on your ministry. And so my little point is our people are vastly ignorant about what it means to worship God and have misconceptions everywhere. And the one truth that I would like to commend is that the essence of worship is being satisfied in God. The essence of worship is being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. Or you can put it any other way you want. The essence of worship is to enjoy God. The essence of worship is to delight in God. And so on. Where did I get that idea? Well, let me take you on a, on a very brief um, chronological path. Not a priority path. Because the Bible is the key. But I'm going to quote a few others. Jonathan Edwards whose 300th birthday will be celebrated October 5 of this year, is the most important dead theologian in my life outside the Bible. And Edwards said this amazing statement, which I think is absolutely true and utterly transforming of ministry. Here's a quote. So God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, by communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting in him and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself, God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, but by being rejoiced in. That was a ministry-transforming sentence for me. If you believe that, it will have profound effects. Let me keep reading. When those that see it His glory. Delight in it. God is more glorified than if they only see it. 
His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and his creature receive his glory. And that it might be received both by the mind and the heart. And here comes a crucial sentence. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also of his approbation of it and his delight in it. All I add to Edwards is to make it rhyme. Because I say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. We must, therefore, labor in our churches if we would have God-glorifying, God-centered, missions-pursuing people. We must labor to awaken their joy in God. Willie handed me last week up in Scotland a quotation from uh, William Still as I was saying some of these things. So I'll quote from him. Spontaneous praise is not the iced cake of Christian worship and service, but it's bread and butter. It is not worship or service at all without joy and thanksgiving. So, if worship is to be the purpose and goal of missions, we want worshipers, it must be the fuel of missions at home. If we want to draw people into marveling at Him, we must marvel at Him. If we want to commend Him as the all-satisfying treasure of the universe, He must be our all-satisfying treasure. Otherwise, we will be hypocrites, or more than likely, we will simply not do missions. Because it feels so inauthentic to go around the world commending Christ as the great satisfying joy of the human heart. But He's not in ours, and so how could we ever do that? How could we go to Pakistan and say, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all of Pakistan. When we're not spontaneously praising the Lord from a heart that is ravished by the King of Kings. So, that is our task. We must... Labor, preach, pray, suffer, suffer long. Model for the church a passion for God's supremacy. For the joy of all peoples. That's our task. It is an essential element in worship. Now let me close with as many implications as I can fit into the minutes I have to close. Because I have five of them and I don't know if I can get them all in. Let's try. Implications of saying God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Implications of drawing out 
the truth. Therefore, labor to help your people be satisfied in Him for His glory and the good of the nations and the neighborhoods. What are the implications? Number one, your people will be set free from the deadening effects of Kantian morality. By Kantian, I mean the morality taught and fostered all over the world today by the philosopher Immanuel Kant. The legacy of Immanuel Kant is tragic in the church. Kant said something that almost all of you probably at one time in your life said, and maybe many of you believe today, do right for right's sake. Do right because it's right. How many have said to our children, how many have said to our churches, do right because it's right. Subplot under that, as Kant made very clear, was because if you do right for joy, it's not right anymore. It's sub-ethical. It's unvirtuous if you try to do the right for the joy that there is in the right. That has killed worship in thousands of churches because it makes people suspicious of their longing to be happy. It makes people have convictions that if they walk into church and the essence of worship might be to be satisfied in Him, they've got to clamp it down. Because if I do this for that, I am turning it into immorality, not morality. That's the legacy that lands on most of our churches. And it's the air we breathe. And it is deadly. Here's the problem with Kant. You can't define right without the pursuit of joy in it. If God says, serve the Lord with gladness. We think we can split that up, take the first half, do it, and fear the second half and the pursuit of the obedience of it. It's amazing how broad spread that is. That we are afraid to tell people God tells you, serve the Lord with gladness. Therefore, if you try to serve Him with an indifference to your gladness in the serving, you are indifferent to obedience. The implication, therefore, of what I'm saying is, it will free your people both to worship corporately and to worship in the Romans 12, 1 and 2 kind of obedience and the worship among the nations like they've never been free before. And I long for that to happen. Nothing kills personal and corporate worship like the suspicion or the conviction that the pursuit of joy is wrong. Second implication. Missions becomes the joyful and dangerous life-risking summons to the nations to join us in our joy in God. He couldn't write that down. Probably it's too complicated. I wonder if I can simplify it. Missions becomes the summons to the nations. Join us in our joy in God because that's what glorifies Him. Now that implication is not deduced merely logically from what I've said. I don't, I'm a little bit afraid of Theologies built mainly on deductive logic. 
I must have texts. <laughs> because we are so fallible in our logic. We draw all kinds of inferences out of premises that are unbiblical. Even though the premises are biblical. So I want texts. For example, Romans 15.9 on this point, where Paul says, Christ came that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. So Christ came that the nations would glorify God for His mercy. And one verse later, he says, as it is written, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. There it is. That's all I want. Now I have a text. What does the the nations and the Gentiles glorifying God for His mercy translate into? He goes back and he quotes Deuteronomy. He says, Rejoice, O nations, or rejoice, O peoples, or rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. Missions is done by churches that have been brought to see God as the most joyful, all-satisfying treasure of the universe for which they can let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. Our treasure, God, abideth still. Let's go tell the nations to join us in the joy we have in God. That's the kind of churches we'll do missions. And that's what we want to labor for. My prayer is that as you leave, this place, you will be a flame to set your people on fire with joy in God. Not because it's icing on the cake, as William Steele says, but because it's the cake. It's worship. All of life is worship. And therefore, everything must be done for joy in God. Implication number three. Saying that God is glorified in us when we are satisfied in Him and therefore we should try to cultivate churches that are passionate for God overcomes the tension between the missionary motive of compassion and the missionary motive of the glory of God. I've lived with this tension for so long until I saw these things. I'd love to give you illustrations from my own family about my wayward son Abraham who... Praise God, after three years of terrible wandering and making an absolute mess of his life, came home to Jesus last October. And the, the Wednesday after I get back from this trip, we will have a restoration service. We excommunicated my son three years ago. And we will have a service of restoration on the 30th. And the reason I, only, only reason I mention that is because during that three years, I knew compassion for the lost like I'd never known it before. And... That's a sign of my weakness. I admit that. He's my son. Easy. (laughs) Easy to have compassion for my son. But it caused me to wrestle. What's the relationship between my compassion for a lost person and my zeal for the glory of God? And now do you see how the two come together? What is compassion for people who are about to spend eternity in misery? Compassion is save them for everlasting joy in God. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Rescue them for that. And now I've discovered if they have joy in God, God is glorified in that joy. And therefore I don't have to choose between a motive of pursue the glory of God and pursue compassion for people. They're the same. Implication number four. 
It overcomes the tension between the impulse to a life of sacrifice and the impulse to a life of joy. Aren't we torn? I mean, you say, John Piper, you go around telling people to pursue their joy. What about sacrifice? Well, if you understand me aright, here's what I'm saying. If for the joy set before you, you will join Jesus on the Calvary Road and lay down your life to extend your joy to others, yours will only be deepened as you die for Jesus. I really am on a recruitment here for martyrs. And I mean that. The Bible says there are a certain number of martyrs who have to come in before the last day. Revelation 6.11 And therefore I'm expecting that there will be some in this church because some of you will be so inflamed by this world evangelization issue that you will leave your churches like William Carey did and, and become one of those. And you don't have to choose between sacrifice and joy. The people who have lived the most sacrificial lives including David Livingston and Hudson Taylor, said, I never made a sacrifice. Last, quickly I'll close. It keeps, this is fifth implication, it keeps God as the center of worship and missions. If you teach your people and model for your people that God is most glorified in them when they are most satisfied in Him because... Nothing makes God more supreme and more central than when people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or life itself, nothing is more precious than God. Nothing satisfies like God. So, brothers and sisters, labor to display God for your people in such lavish colors that they say, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Father, I commend these friends into your Spirit's powerful working now. If I have said anything amiss, correct it, I pray. And whatever I have said that is true and biblical, confirm it, Holy Spirit, mightily by Your own sovereign work. And for the sake of the nations, set our churches aflame with a passion for Your supremacy in all things, for the joy of all peoples. Through Christ I pray.